the third point is that within this pers perspective, the central ethical category, horizon, turns out to be respect for otherness. That, as if, you know, that's the ultimate horizon. Here, let me quote Alain Badiou from an interview he made with uh, this art journal cabinet, where he made a point with which I agree. Quote, I must particularly insist that the formula respect for the other has nothing to do with any serious definition of good and evil. What does respect for the other mean when one is at war against an enemy, when one must judge the work of a mediocre artist, when science is faced with obscurantist sects? sects. Very often it is the respect for others which is injurious, which is evil especially when it is resistance against others or even hatred of others that drives a subjectively just action, end of quote. Now, the obvious liberal reproach here would have been, but do Badiou's own examples not display the limit of his Badiou's logic? Yes, hatred for the enemy, intolerance towards false wisdom, but it's not the big lesson of the 20th century of totalitarian experience that even and especially when we are caught in such a struggle, we should respect a certain limit, the limit precisely of the other's radical otherness. Is it not that we should never reduce the other to an enemy, to the bearer of false knowledge or whatever? Is it not that there is always in every figure of the other an impenetrable abyss of radical otherness, almost a kind of absolute? The 20th century totalitarianism, with its millions of victims, shows, this would be the liberal criticism, I think, the ultimate outcome catastrophic outcome of following to the end what appears to be a subjectively just action. But I think that this precisely, now it's me who is speaking, no longer the liberals to avoid confusion, this is uh, the reasoning that we should reject. Let me take the extreme case, a mortal violent struggle against a fascist enemy. Should one display here a respect for the abyss of the radical otherness of Hitler's personality and so on, it is here, I think, that one should apply Christ's well-known words about how he brings swords and division, not unity and peace. Out of the very love for humanity, inclusive whatever remained of humanity in Nazis themselves, one should fight them in an absolutely ruthless, respectless way. In short, the Jewish saying, often quoted, like in Schindler's list, apropos Holocaust, you know that well-known wisdom, when somebody saves one man alone from death, one saves entire humanity. It may sound strange, but I think it should be supplemented with, when one kills only one true enemy of humanity, one saves entire humanity. That's the more difficult part to accept. The true ethical test is not only the readiness to save victims, but perhaps even more, the ruthless dedication to annihilate those who made them victims. Now, what, back to this celebration of multitude, what this emphasis of, on multitude and diversity masks is, of course, the underlying monotony of today's global life. I think this is the ultimate fake of multiculturalism, this emphasis, different lifestyles, and so on, that is basically all the same. How then is this concealed? I think through another key feature of contemporary ideology, which is the constant ironic undermining of every identification. The point today, the way authority functions today, 
It's how. Do you see the movie? It's a ridiculous movie, but I like it. With Bruce Willis, The Unbreakable. Where you know the ridiculous story, the hero discovers that he is in real life an invincible uh, cartoon hero. And the problem is that it's difficult for him to assume this mandate, whatever. And I think this is how generally authority today's function. Today's boss no longer says... I insist on order, you must obey me, and then behind his back you make fun at him. Today's boss comes to you, makes obscene jokes, embraces you, and so on, but he nonetheless remains the boss. So, in a closer look, how does this ideology function? Let me take another example from Hollywood, which gives us the other aspect of today's dominant ideology. Uh, this recent, uh, again, animated blockbuster big success, uh, Shrek. You know what it is. It's a cartoon about the standard, it's a standard fairy tale story. The hero and his endearingly confused comic helper go and defeat the dragon and save the princess from its clutches. But if you saw the movie, you know what I'm talking about. This story is quoted in joking, subversive FX, almost sometimes it looks us, but it's not. Brechtian, Verfremdungen, extraneations, ironic self-referential comments. For example, you know, when at the end the couple marry, or in the middle, sorry, the couple is supposed to marry in the church, you see people applauding, but then you see that, that uh, servants of the king are giving stage direction, like applaud, respectful silence, and so on. Or, for example, the two lovers kiss the ugly ogre and the beautiful princess, but instead of the standard story where the ugly guy frog, whatever, turns into a beautiful prince here, it's the beautiful princess who turns into an ugly peasant woman so that they can be happy couple and so on and so on. So we get all these reversals, for example, even the dragon turns out to be a caring female who later helps the heroes. We have anachronic references to modern culture and so on and so on. So how are we to read it? I can imagine a Judith Butler reading, which would be, yeah, yeah, these are displacement, reinscription, another site of resistance, you know. Uh, I don't think that it is. I think that this film perfectly exemplifies how ideology functions today. The key focus for me is that with all these jokes, displacement, blah, 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 the same old story is being told. And I think that the function of all these displacement jokes is precisely to render the traditional narrative palpable for our time. The function of all these jokes is profoundly reactionary. It is to prevent us from asking why not telling another story. It's precisely a way for the same story to go on. So no wonder that the finale of the film consists of the ironic version of the old monkey's hit, monkey's was a band, from the 60s, I'm a believer. This is how we are today believers. We make fun of ourselves while continuing, we make fun of our beliefs while continuing to practice them. So, let me now conclude. I'll probably already speak for 10 minutes now, on my non-linear notion of time. Okay, I move to the last part now. Uh, what conclusions should be made from this situation? The first one, I think, one should uh, fight a certain attitude, which was again perfectly designated by Chesterton, this attitude which is at the different levels, of course, practice in our 
public lives, in our usual secular lives, but also in the radical academia. It's, did you notice how it, with many so-called radical academics, you have one stylistic prohibition, which is the prohibition to firmly assert your position. You are not allowed to say, this is it. You are allowed to say, and you have these dozens of rhetoric variations, like, usually it's a rhetorical question. Might we not risk the claim that under certain conditions it could be possible to propose that then woman is a symbolic construction, not a natural category, whatever. But that's how it is. So always, as if in order to make a statement, you must always add a qualification. But I don't mean really, of course, I mean it self-critically, it's not, and so on and so on. I think that the falsity of this attitude was again denounced by Chester. A wonderful quote, the last one, don't be worried. Uh, at any street corner, we may meet a man who utters the frantic, blasphemous statement that he may be wrong. Every day, one comes across somebody who says that, of course, his views may not be the right ones. Of course, his views must be the right ones, or they are not his views. End of quote. And I think, again, in many of today's academic rhetorics, the same falsity is discernible. And I think Chesterton is quite right to use here the strong term of blasphemy. The apparent modest relativization of one's own position is the mode of appearance of its very opposite, of privileging one's own position of enunciation. I think you make it very safe for you. It's the way of not risking an, an engagement. So, again, the lesson of all this is thus that there are basically two lessons. First, we should be very careful not to attribute to the other the naive belief we are unable to sustain. What do I mean by this? First, uh, let me just emphasize how I think many of the terms which are part of the post, of the of the postmodern critical postcolonial studies doxa today are deeply Euros, not only Eurocentric but. Uh, are, how to put it, uh, uh, are kind of a masked, aggressive, extremely aggressive Eurocentrism masked as its opposite. Let me take the fundamental category where you cannot miss if you want to be right today. Everybody is against essentialism and for contingency. No, contingency is good, essentialism is bad. But let's look closely how this category works. I claim that it is effectively a new, differently coded version of the old distinction between, you know, primitives who believe firmly in their beliefs and we moderns who know about contingency, who have, uh, who, who have a more flexible intellectual approach, who live more reflexive lives and so on. Because if you look at it closely, the passage from, from fundamentalism or essentialism to contingency is always staged as a kind of a passage from more primitive, naive attitude towards more modern, plural, contingent attitude, whatever. So one should be, again, very suspicious about how this functions. For example, even in the case of the highest certainty, the notorious case of so-called media image, Muslim fundamentalist on a suicidal mission, we usually say, oh my God, but they have to believe. They really must believe. At least they believe. Well, frankly, I doubt if they really believe. I spoke with some of my Israeli friends, who are, of course, 
I mean, Israeli in close contact with Palestinians fighting Zionism. And they told me that they made some researches there and came to a strange, I mean, researches, okay, speaking with people who knew people and so on, and came to a strange, much more refined result that with most of this suicide, so-called bombers, even if they pretend even if it may appear that they really believe this story, which is often falsely appeared in the Western media, you know, I will kill myself and tomorrow I will have the famous 50 virgins in paradise or what, that the logic is really different. Uh, the, the underlying logic is that they are terribly unsure of their belief. And the wager of their suicide is rather, I'm not sure if I believe, but by killing myself, I will in a way convince myself that I believe. So what I want to say is that even there, there is a kind of a doubt. On the con and the counterpoint to this would have been that we in the West, precisely when we pretend not to believe, you know, always the others are believers, we are cynical, we don't take things seriously. But I think that the structure which was elaborated by some Lacanian theories of the subject supposed to believe, how you need another one to believe for you, is widely practiced today, you know, the classical examples, for example, uh, I don't know, you know, how when you, you say, I don't believe in, in Santa Claus, but I pretend to believe just on behalf of my children. But my God, do the children believe? Ask any child, he would say, of course not, I'm not stupid. I pretend to believe so that I get the presents, and so on and so on. And it's exactly the same with history, no? Do you know a wonderful book by Paul Vane? Did the old Greeks believe in their myths? And the answer is that, you know, the best example of this ancient beliefs is, I think, a story about these Ethiopian Christians, no? Who, they believe, they believe that Lion is a sacred animal. Because it's a sacred animal, it respects Sabbath, so it shouldn't attack their sheep on Saturday. But their logic is, we believe in it. But nonetheless, it's better not to take onto pasture your sheep. No, you, you never know. And so, again, uh, how does belief function today? Let me evoke a strange example. You know that after the 20th or during even the 20th Congress of the Soviet Communist Party, the Khrushchev Report Congress. You know that there were even doctors back prepared to treat collapses, and it did happen. I think a couple of people had heart attack, attack there on the spot. A couple of people died immediately afterwards, like Boleslav Bierut, the big Polish Stalinist leader, and a couple of people like Alexander Fadiev, the hardline Stalinist writer, president of Soviet Writers' Union, also killed himself a couple of days later. But wait a minute. Was he a believer? It would be naive to accept that he was a believer. I mean, my, my God, he denounced dozens of persons. So he couldn't play the game of, oh my God, I thought we live in an ideal world, now I learned about horrible Stalinist crimes. No, it wasn't... He didn't learn basically anything new in Khrushchev's report. What was disturbed was only the surface. It was rendered public. That was the uh, unbearable fact. Another example, which is, I think, the ultimate example of ethical hypocrisy, although it's usually in the history books that I read about the last month of Germany, German defeat uh, uh, in the spring, uh, sorry, in the first month of 45, it's evoked as an ethical example. The well-known example of a German Mayor, who in the early fort, there are two stories. One is from the West. The U.S. Army occupied a small town and forced the mayor, forced the mayor and others to visit the nearby concentration camp. And upon his return home, 
he committed suicide. The idea is, oh my God, you see, he was honest. Absolutely not. I think this was the ultimate hypocritical act. Why? My God, I'm sure he knew it. What he wasn't, this, the, the, the strategy of this suicide was to retroactively create the illusion that he was innocent, that he didn't know it. It's utter hypocrisy. The same with another ethical example that I learned. When Soviet army was approaching an East uh, German city, a mayor also, he was supposed to be an honest Nazi. And in contrast to others who simply uh, uh, burned the, their documents, erased their traces, he proudly put on all the Nazi insignia and walked towards the Russians and was immediately shot. And the books that I read say, you see, this was an honest Nazi. My God, if he was so honest, what was he doing with Nazis, with all the insignia and so on? <laughs> you know, so, again, matters with belief are problematic. The second, the last point that I want to make is that uh, instead of conceding in advance any territory to the enemy in political struggle, one should struggle even for notions which appear naturally to belong to the enemy. What do I mean by this? Let me take, really at the end, an extreme case. I recently was reading Arnold Schoenberg's uh, Harmonian Lehre, you know, his major theoretical manifesto from 1911, where he develops his opposition to tonal music. But how he, does he do it? In the second part, he does it in terms which almost recall what we perceive as Nazi anti-Semitic rhetoric. He designates tonal music as diseased, degenerated world in need of a clear solution. The tonal system has given in to inbreeding and incest. Romantic courts are cosmopolitan, hermaphroditic, and so on and so on. He's, he, he even asks for some kind of apocalyptic uh, uh, act in order to clear the spiritual situation and so on and so on. Now, the obvious thing would have been, you see, even he was infected by the, by the virus of uh, what later exploded in Nazism and so on and so on. But I think it's precisely this conclusion that we should avoid. What makes Nazism repulsive is not the rhetoric of final solution as such, but the concrete twist it gives Nazism to it. Another popular topic of this kind of analysis is the allegedly proto-fascist character of mass choreography displaying disciplined movements of thousands of bodies, you know, parades and so on. If one finds them, finds them also in socialism, one immediately draws the conclusion about a deeper affinity between the two totalitarianisms. I think such procedure, procedures are typical of ideological liberalism, and they miss the point. Not only are such mass performances not inherently fascist, they are not even neutral, waiting to be appropriated by the left or the right. It was Nazism who stole them, who appropriated them from the workers' movement. So it is here that I think one should abandon this topic, this, you know, search for proto-fascism. Where did it begin? Was it one popular theory that uh, it was the romantic uh, aesthetic reading of Kantian ethics or whatsoever. I don't, I, I think that here again I refer to a conversation with, but you who gave me this idea that uh, the beginning of fascism is fascism itself in a way. It's, I don't accept this game of this naive pre-Nietzschean genealogy. Along the same lines, I think, one should reject 
The notion that discipline, from self-control to bodily training, is a kind of a proto-fascist feature. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, for example, I remember from my youth the wave of kung fu films, you know, Bruce Lee and so on and so on. If you ask me, frankly, I think that they were relatively progressive even. They were a genuine working class spontaneous ideology of youngsters whose only means of success was the disciplinary training of their only possession, their bodies. Spontaneity, the let it go attitude, belong to those who have the means to afford it. Those who have nothing have only their bodies to discipline them. Of course, I'm aware that this bodily discipline is to be opposed to the opposite bodily discipline which is not the collective training, but jogging, bodybuilding, and so on and so on, as part of realizing your inner potentials. It's typical how the obsession with one's body is an almost obligatory part, I notice, of the passage of ex-leftist radicals into the maturity of pragmatic politics. This is what Jane Fonda and Joschka Fischer have in common. In the youth, they were more radical. Now they are mainstream. In between, there was a period where, you know, Joschka Fischer published a book, My Path to Myself, where he reports how he lost 50 kilos and so on and so on. So, again, uh, my point is... Uh, how should you put it? Let's not the enemy determine the terrain. We should simply, we should, if, we should totally, I think, abandon uh, or outgrow this notion of uh, liberal tolerance determining the terms. We should fearlessly approach, sorry, appropriate terms, even if it means, even if they have today uh, neo-Nazi, whatever connotations. We should be absolutely fearless here. So, to conclude. In a, another, I want, since I began with an East German uh, joke, I want to conclude with Hollywood. In a classic line from a Hollywood screwball comedy, the girl, I forgot which one was, but from the late 30s with Fred Astaire, uh, Ginger Rogers, I think. The girl asks her boyfriend, do you want to marry me? The boy answers, no. The girl says, stop dodging the issue. Give me a straight answer. I think she was right. In a way, the underlying logic is correct. The only proper answer for her was, of course, yes. And this is not a crazy illusionary example. I remember twice when I was young having exactly the same experience. I remember when I was six, seven, I encountered a priest. He asked me, do you believe in God? I said, no. He said, stop avoiding the issue. That's not a serious answer. No? Okay, I had later with a communist functionary the same experience and so on. But what I want to say is that isn't it something of the same order that we are facing today with the choice democracy or fundamentalism, war on terror? Is it not that within the terms of this choice, you really cannot, if you say I'm for fundamentalism, oh, it's not serious, come on, and so on and so on. So, precisely, when we are faced with a choice like that, we should focus on the true problem, which is the way the ruling ideology imposes on us what in this choice. It's the way it is structured, no? Of course you cannot choose fundamentalism. But then if you choose democracy, it's already in advance determined what is democracy. The problem is what they sell you under the guise of democracy. And here, again, we should be fearless in what sense? Especially situations like after September 11th, we 
are, they generate some kind of a, how should I call it, a false clarity. No, the idea is that things now are clear. This was the message of American establishment to cultural studies people. You know, the titles were all around like the end of the age of irony. You are able to play all the games, now you must choose. But I think that our thesis should be that precisely in situations like that, when things appear to be clear, us against them survival, the mystification is absolute. At that point, one should gather the strength and say, no, it's not that now things are for the real. Yes, they are for the real, but not in the sense that you mean. They are for the real in the sense that now we should question the very presuppositions of what is imposed on us. Which is why I'm more and more convinced that what is truly at stake in all this September 11th affair is uh, rather that even if it was not, I'm not of those uh, paranoia conspiracy theorists who claim that, that the bombing was directly organized by the FBI, but how to put it, I don't believe this, but se non è vero e ben trovato. That is to say, the crucial element for me is, what is, not the big spectacular events, but just look at the details of what goes on at the daily life, how things are imperceptibly changing, our standards. For example, do you know that in American media, you find now regularly open discussions about torture? Should we reintroduce torture? What I found horrible is not that the answer is yes, but that it's accepted as legitimate topic of the debate. And even liberals who oppose it, oppose it not on principled grounds, but, no, but like Alan Dershowitz says, yes, but we cannot ever be sure and we should change the laws and so on. You know, he already, even he, already accepted the, this as the topic of the debate. Or another thing, you read about this, uh, about this idea of this, uh, this idea of tips. New idea, it's already a proposal to, to engage literally hundreds of thousands of workers who, on account of their work, have access to private apartments, uh, offices, and so on, to serve as informers. Now, the idea is that postmen, repairmen, and so on, should be given appropriate material and report on suspicious activities, and so on, and so on. So, you know, this is what interests me, the actual silent changes taking place at, at the daily level. This, I think, is what is effectively happening. We can, forgot, we can forget about Middle East. What interests me is how, what interests me is this radical change in the mode of functioning. Uh, of our so-called democracies. Namely, my thesis is a very pessimistic one. It's that it may sound crazy, but I'm not a so-called lunatic leftist Trotskyite, but nonetheless, I'm very much to the left. And my thesis is that uh, uh, basically we are approaching the era of the end of even what we till now had as democracy. I think that slowly we are moving to an era where more and more how should I put it? It's not that there will be a direct state of emergency. The crucial statement was by, I think, Rumsfeld called John Ashcroft, who said that the war on terror will never end, definitely not before 50 years. That is to say, the truly horrible thing is not to, to use Agamben terms, that normal democratic life will be replaced by state of emergency, but that somehow we would not even be able to tell the difference. They, they would be perceived as the same. So this may be bad news, but at the same time, they, these are good news. The enemy will be forced to show his face. Thank you very much.
So, how long did I speak? Where are we now? One hour and ten minutes. Ah, that's good. Okay. okay, but it took away your your uh, proof, no? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what on earth happened is happiness. Yeah. In the beginning it was all happiness, 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 and then no word of happiness anymore, and at the end the, the, the enemy shows its face. Ah, uh, no. Is that now, the good news is that now happiness is again possible? Yeah, but I will tell you why. I have a, the, I have a theory of happiness, which is a good, the good happiness. You know what? What you find very briefly, not another 20 minutes, what you find in the best novels of Marguerite Dirac, which is that usually how does love emerge there it's not I look you eye to eye we look into each other it's that a couple is confronted a task of I don't know searching for a third person and then you don't look eye to eye you just hold hands and focus on the third element and then all of a sudden you discover but here I'm happy which is why quite pathetically I think that even intimate happiness is no longer today to be found in intimacy intimacy is already public today you can have I don't know public websites where you can find I mean today everybody can confess his private secrets that's not the intimate The only space for intimate happiness must be created through some kind of new collectivity. More than ever, I think that when we speak about withdrawing into private life, I think that the true victim is precisely private life. We are getting less and less of what till now was privacy, was intimacy. But okay. Yeah, but still, I try to. You want to be happy. I try to find. No, no, no. I want to be happy like the Czech people. You know, that is. I think it's a good idea. Uh, I'm, I'm totally with you that their happiness could be the worst. What can happen uh, as long as we have a chance uh, to be wrong about it? Uh, so we can still be uh, what's that optimistic? You know, we don't have it, but there is something possible and so on. Is it not if our life has now become after September 11? And I think there is quite a accurate. Uh, description, something which is an undeclared state of emergency, you know, would that not be fit in your first part of your talk about this in-between Uh, in which happiness yes. can be experienced. So you no, no, say no, quite in an empirical way, definitely. Yes. I think that Americans are now definitely happier Happy. than oh, before. Yes. Because well, they have a strong true. power, you know, absolutely. But this is for me only... Uh, no, no, no. No, no, no. Wait a minute. I can tell you exactly what I mean. I mean, before September 11th, there was still this, how to put it, uh, silent prohibition, not only among critical academics, but even among many, you know, they did Vietnam, they did many, there was a kind of a resistance towards simply identifying with American patriotism. I think that the result of September 11th was a kind of a, how should I make a verb out of innocence? Innocentization of American patriotism. Like, now that we suffer this, we can be innocently fully American patriots again. That's path to happiness. But you have been in the best on yourself. You know, you should, should kill people who try to kill you. It's very simple. That oh, no. makes you happy. Okay, but let's go back to the audience now. Please feel make me enough. Make me happy by killing well, your voice. <laughs> make him happy by allowing him to kill you. <laughs> Come on, guys. If, you, if I don't have volunteers, I take others. Okay. This is uh, just a minor observation. Yeah. Have you seen another story with Catherine Hepburn? Isn't that Audrey Hepburn? 
Yeah, but if we are referring to the same list, I must say that as many critical so-called intellectuals, I was rather nicely surprised by that list. It wasn't as bad as one expected. You know that, for example, of the Christian films, Pasolini's uh, Matthew was in, and the most disgusting one, Zeffirelli's, Jesus of Nazareth was not, so that I remember Zeffirelli wrote an open letter claiming that Vatican is already occupied by, by communist agents and so on. No, there were many quite nice, surp- I mean, that list is not as bad as one may... I give it out to my students, and I give it to, to look at it closely. Uh, but the point I want to make yeah. is that it's a, it probably provided a model for some aspects of the sound of music, but there are, uh, there's a very different agenda. There are three fathers... With whom she is in love, uh, the father in Africa, who is the is the doctor, uh, and she doesn't consummate that relationship, is sent back to the church and mother superior in Holland, and then renounces the church because her father is killed, mm. and then as the Germans occupy uh, Holland, she goes out to the misery of community service in the service of. Uh, uh, soldiers on both sides of the of the, of the fence. On both sides. Yeah, both sides. So what's sorry, I haven't seen the movie. I just know about it. So what's the end? What happens at the end? The, the end is that she's just going out the door after taking off her habit, and uh, in, in a very clinical sense. And then she she just moves out in this long tracking shot, and you see her in her street clothes moving towards the world where uh, she is going to encounter misery upon misery. So it doesn't really reinforce the, 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 uh, the thesis about sexuality, I don't think. Wait, but, but, but I think simply that this, I wouldn't quote this film then as an part of my argumentation, as an example of happiness. I think, I don't see then the continuity with it with the sound of music. Because the sound of music, you know, is much trickier film that one may expect. I claim that it's a wonderful film in what sense that? If you look at it closely, you will see that, okay, officially is Austrian resistance towards Hitler and the Nazis. But if you look really closely at the features, small features, it's really that the Nazis are presented as a kind of a abstract cosmopolitan occupying power and the Austrians are the good small fascists, how should I put it? So you know, the implicit message is almost the opposite of the explicit message. I think it's a much more reactionary film than it may appear. So I think the element of justice in the film is a nice detail, a small mistake. You remember that kid song, uh, uh, Doremi, whatever, the thing? Then when they go into Salzburg, they buy some oranges the movie is supposed to take place in 38 they buy some oranges put the image on a freeze and look in detail it says they're product of Israel no <laughs> so that's a nice kind of a truth of the film <laughs> okay Jay uh, I had a question about happiness yeah. it stems from it, several years ago I worked on I was hired to work on a play that was uh, about uh, 
two parents dealing with a child that has cystic fibrosis. And it was a play designed, written for, and designed to be presented to people in hospitals mm -hmm. who have to deal with parents. So they had to learn how parents react. Mm -hmm. so, but the crux of the play, and what kept getting repeated over and over again, was the parents' shock at learning this. How are we ever going to deal with this struggle day, day to day? How's our child ever going to be happy? How are we ever going to be happy? And it seemed to me that that it was shocking. This is a horribly wrong question to ask to a certain degree. Certainly happiness is an issue, but mm. there's so much more at stake than just happiness. And then it, it got me to thinking for the, quite, a few, quite a few months after this project, I was really noticing and shocked by the, the constant drive to find happiness as an end-all to satisfy everything. And, and that it was all ha you know, it, happiness, smiling, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's a fullness. But in fact, it's not. It's an emptiness to certain yeah. I, I, But don't you think that, especially in these cases of terminal diseases and so on, that the usual, the only consequent answer is ignorance, no? Yeah. Which is why I'm against happiness. Like, for example, let me, another story which I like, uh, you know this Huntington disease, no? This is one of the few cases where you really have radical genetic determinism. There it's clear, like, I can, uh, okay, to not, not to be sadistic, you analyze my blood and you can tell me if it is the case after genetic analysis that now you will be healthy for three years, in around three years' time, you will develop the first symptoms. Half a year later, you will be dead. Complete determinism. You can up to a couple of months up or down. You can even uh, determine in advance the, uh, the, not only that I will die, but how, when. But now what's the catch? The catch is that the very doctor who invented this test is afraid to apply it on himself. So it's interesting that the only people who have in family, in their families, Huntington's disease and accept the test are those who, usually it's the pathetic parental care staff, who have children and want to know if they have it so that if they have it, they can take care financially, provide for the children. But then I ask myself a very simple question. From the standpoint of happiness, what would I have done? from the opportunistic standpoint of happiness. And I found only one solution. The opportunistic happiness solution would have been the following one. Let's say that you are a very good doctor and a friend of mine. I would have asked you. I will tell you the truth. No, but that's precisely what I got. No, my idea would be, analyze me, but don't tell me anything. Just if you know, let us say, if you learn that three years from now the illness will start, then a month before, kill me in my sleep without me knowing. That would be the closest you can come to happiness. But it doesn't work, of course. Why not? Because every time I would met you, I would know. So let's go to the end. The only true happiness would have been an anonymous state agency doing this to all of us without us even knowing. It. <laughs> this is the solution of happiness, I claim. So, okay. okay, first Ray and Victor. I wonder if you can provide another example of a nation that had as one of its premises the pursuit of happiness and what has become of that nation. <laughs> oh, it's not, uh, I think that, but isn't it that in modernity, especially in modernity, happiness is basically, I don't think even we have to look far, isn't it silently? admitted today that the, the state's main duty, even more than to guarantee freedom, is to provide happiness. It started even with, I think it was James, the, the one who was, uh, who, whose head was cut off by, by Orwell, uh, uh, sorry, Charles I, 
who issued this famous statement, my God, I will, I, will, I will make the English people happy even if I will have to force them to be happy with the army and so on. I mean, it, it, it began there. No, it, it began there in a way. So I think that one even doesn't, one even doesn't have to, to look for it. Okay, in the case of United States, it's more, more specific and so on and so on. But which is why I think you find all the paradoxes of happiness in an even more direct way. For example, what happens with subjectivity? I read recently an excellent book. I love it. The book is How to Disappear Completely. And it's uh, quite a serious book. I mean, not dreaming. The idea is, let's say you are tired of your life and you want to disappear and create new identity. It gives you very precise instructions how you do it. The idea is that he discovered this guy that the birth, where the birth registers are kept in the United States, are not at the same place than when death registers are kept. So the idea is you notice a certain person approximately of your age died. Then you, you write to his place of birth, to local state authority place, whatever, and you just ask for a new birth certificate and you give some money and you can get it without documents, they send it to you. No, no, no. Yes, it's done. No, this book is outdated. Say, uh, okay, but it was know it now, but it really? was for many yeah, years. Yeah, because then with this you get you get social security number. With this you become member of the union. You get a credit card and you are in. Ah, and I ask you for identity before you get your really. Yeah. Okay, then that's American terrorism whatsoever. <laughs> no, but my point is that this book series is wonderful. This was published by a publishing house which specializes in books which I think are a kind of obscene truth of these official books of, you know, how to make your life, life happy, how to succeed. The other titles published by this house are like how to take revenge on your enemies, how to ruin someone with bad rumors, and so on and so on. I mean, it's wonderful books. <laughs> how to survive prison, I think, is one of those. Really? Yeah. It's like, so you're going to prison. But you are not talking about the other one, which I like, which I think it's theoretically important book, but totally different. That This is not the same as, if you mean that, that uh, the worst case... Survivor, because I love I love those books precisely because of uh, how to put it. Uh, again, they they deal with real life situations. The only problem is that you never encounter these situations. No, like you know, you have in the bestseller book you have uh, advices like. What do you do when an alligator or a crocodile bites your leg? The idea is you tap him on the nose because it automatically... Or what do you do when a hungry lion wants to attack you? It's simple. You must have, okay, unfortunately, a jacket. You open it because the lions don't think in depth terms. They think that you are then much bigger and usually turn around and so on. No, it's, no what I mean is that it's very mysterious, the success of this book. I think there is a deep, almost progressive agenda in it, namely, let me ask you a simple question. Which was the only American movie of the last years where you have a spectacle of working class solidarity? It was that otherwise very boring movie, The Perfect Storm. You know, I think that it's almost 
a model of how in these conditions of extreme catastrophe, a kind of elementary, although in a small group, working class solidarity emerges. But it tells a lot about today's situation that we need such, a, such an extreme situation in order to be able to imagine at all any kind of elementary working class solidarity. Sorry, I talked too much. No, what, who is now? Uh, uh, I, I happen to know that there's no other constitution in the world. It's this. What do they have in Bangladesh then? <laughs> but the nation of Bhutan for the past five years has been researching establishing something they're going to call gross national happiness. Mm -hmm. And it's intent. No, they yeah. have yeah. yeah. nations advisor. Yeah. Environmental yeah. I know. And to be cynical, Bhutan is the country where they are selling by thousand small five years old girls to Indian prostitution houses. Yeah, no, yes, no wonder. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and I would never put that happy with gross national happy. Okay. One more thing. I, I just was you may be interested to know that worst case scenarios the book is now becoming a game show. I know that, and I also know that there are further books which I think are uh, are, are not as uh, successful. It's clear that it was, how do you call it, uh, hapax, yes. The best case, uh, the very question of happiness makes everybody unhappy. Conduct an experiment. When you're walking down the hall and you see someone, don't just say, hello, good morning, how do you feel, nice day, and so on. Ask them, stop them. Are you happy? I conducted that experiment for about mm. a year. It was amazing the different kinds of responses I got. The first time I thought I really hit a jackpot because the woman fell against the wall, someone I know very well, a colleague, and she was horrified. It was that her face was crumbled. That's interesting because that's not my experience. I made similar experiments. I will tell you at what level. I think it's just a question of cultural context or whatever because I noticed I'm an idiot at a certain level. By idiot, I mean psychotic. I take things literally, you know. So I remember when the first time I visited the United States, I was shocked it's not done in Europe. You know, this pseudo familiarity of Manhattan waiters, especially in lower Manhattan. You know, you enter, they say, hello, my name is John. How are you today? And so on. So I didn't know what's going on. So I said, oh, no too good, I had a bad night, and so on. And, you know, I didn't know it's a purely rhetorical question, so the guy looked at me as an idiot, as, a, as if I'm an idiot, which I was in that case, no? But my point is that uh, it all depends how this question functions. In my country, you can ask Okay, not too stupidly, are you happy, but are things okay, is it good? And you are supposed to say yes, even if you were castrated yesterday or whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, so, you know what I mean? But you know why this is... communication, right? Yeah, phatic, literally phatic. No, but I like it, you know why? Because, how to put it, it appears to be hypocritical, but it's not. For example, if you ask me or I ask you, how are you doing? You would, like, hello, how, how are you doing? Isn't it that since we don't yet know each other really personally, if you were to suspect that I mean it really, sincerely, you would have, if you were to suspect it, you would have full right to say, sorry, but it's none of your concern, it's none of your business, no. I mean, this question functions, as you said, as a purely fatic question, and it's even an insult to take it seriously. And that's, I think, the mystery of... Yeah, but if you ask the question, using the word happy, it seems to really pierce people. I'm tempted to say... It makes them unhappy. The raising the question... Yeah, but you know, I know where are you aiming at, and I'm... 
have slight doubts if I'm totally ready to follow you. You know what I like about, I think, I don't know where they do this, in Japan, yes. You know, like when somebody disagrees with another guy, no, they don't say, oh, it's shit, I don't agree. No, they say, I totally agree with you. I would just maybe put a slightly different accent. So, okay, I would just like to maybe put a slightly different accent on what you said, which is that if you were aiming at the point, which is that uh, the standard point that you can only be happy in a spontaneous way without knowing that you are happy and so on, I don't buy this. I think you can do it. It's the same as in sexuality. Let's say, to be very vulgar, you are... No, sorry, I am. Okay, no. Impotent. The worst thing you can get is this pseudo-New Age advice. Just don't think about it. Uh, let yourself go, etc. That's... You are finished. What works, and I spoke, not because of my own case, with, with some sexual blah blah, what works is the totally opposite strategy. To treat it as a totally instrumental problem. Like, sit down with your partner and make a detailed list. First, I will kiss you in this way, that, blah blah. Then you do it, and precisely because everything is planned in advance, you somehow forget about your duty to be spontaneous, and it works. So you know what I mean? I think it's the same for happiness. I can well imagine someone wanting to be happy, consciously, and nonetheless being happy. Although not at the same level. It's not the same level. But I'm just a little bit skeptical. Okay, maybe you didn't have this in mind. But I'm a little bit skeptical about the idea that, you know, this ideology of you only can be happy if you don't think about it, this lost innocence, the moment you reflect about it, you are no longer happy, and so on, and so on. The ultimate proof of it, the things are not as simple as that, is that I think this is like in Charles Dickens' novels. I love Dickens, but nonetheless, you know this fundamental hypocrisy, love for these small, poor people who are happy? Yeah, but, I mean, you are saying this, who is, you know, I think that the fact that you can be happy without knowing it is mostly the dream of the people who feel very well not being happy and if you ask them, okay, but would you exchange place with that guy who is supposed to be happy, you would never have accepted it. So I just find it this opposition of only spontaneously living people can be happy. I you are a little bit old-fashioned nowadays. We believe in lifestyle drugs like take Viagra and then your problem is, oh, I don't have to talk with anybody, you know. I'm unhappy with that answer. Okay, good. <laughs> Are you taking, are you taking, is this, was this a personal confession or what? No, but I can give you a few if you like. Yes. Are you? <laughs> Tracy? No, no, I just wanted to answer this question. Ah, you have a question. So nobody has a question? We are happy? We are out here? No. Anybody otherwise, it was a long day and a good discussion. Thank, Thank you. Very much.